Welcome to episode two of the Tally Cast. My name is Daniel Wheelock. I'm a 2L, I'm the vice president of Talis, and thank you for joining us. And I'm James Thompson. I'm also a 2L, and thank you for joining us today. We're joined by Professor John Lee. Uh, Professor Lee was raised in Charleston, West Virginia. He graduated Phi Beta Kappa from the University of North Carolina with a degree in mathematics. He then went on to law school at UNC, where he graduated first in his class and was a member of the North Carolina Law Review. After graduating law school, Professor Lee clerked for the Honorable Roger L. Gregory in the U.S. Court of Appeals in the Fourth Circuit. Um, he then went on to teach at the University of North Carolina, as well as the University of Minnesota Law School. Uh, Professor Lee has supervised several student organizations and has even coached a civil rights moot court team. Um, he's taught a number of different courses, ranging from professional responsibility and evidence uh, to trademark law and IP law. Professor Lee has published numerous law review articles um, and has been published in many different journals, ranging from the Stanford Technology Law Review, Georgetown Journal of Legal Ethics, and my undergraduate alma mater, the BYU uh, Law Review. Uh, Professor Lee has also served as an officer in the Army National Guard. During this past summer, Professor Lee accepted a position um, as an associate professor here at OU Law. Professor Lee has been seen around um, the law school happily talking to students and running in between uh, numerous student organization meetings. Professor Lee from Talis, welcome to OU Law and thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I'm excited to be here and thank you for asking me to come. Of course. Uh, so one quick question. Sure. So as I was going and writing your, your intro, you graduated law school with a 3.99 GPA. What was the one class that got you? Actually, so it's a funny story. Um, prior to arriving here, my main class was torts. And it was actually torts. In my first year, first class, um, I just didn't have the law school thing yet, right? And so over time, I improved. But yes, torts was the one class that really did me in. Okay. I think that's for all of us as, you know, looking back at our 1L, it, that first class was always, was always the roughest one, I think. Oh, yeah. So, so actually, um, and I tell my, my students this, uh, we had an ungraded midterm in that class. The, there were 40 students in the class, and he gave 32 mediums, four highs and four lows, and I got a low. And I remember that feeling. It was, it was not a good feeling. Um, and I just wasn't doing the law school thing right. So, in fact, it was a wonderful thing that I got that low because it was a wake-up call that, that um, I was not doing law school right. So you, you can go from a low in your first midterm to, I guess, first in your class. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Well, I'm one of those uh, students who's experienced a lot of lows in law school. So how did you make that improvement and what did you change from that? Yeah. So, you know, in part, it wasn't that I, that I didn't understand what was going on in class, right? Like I understood what was going on. I had the takeaway, but the thing that I was not used to in part because I was a math major was like, I really had to show all of my work, right? Like there were facts in the fact pattern that I was already applying. And so I knew what the answer was, right? But, 
but I didn't realize that I had to really just like show every single reason why. And so once someone told me that, I was like, oh yeah, like I understand it, right? So I think for a lot of students, they get it. They understand what the answer is, but it's really the practice of like pointing out the obvious to professors because like I can't tell if you reached the right conclusion because you knew what the standard was and you were applying it correctly or if you just guessed, right? And so really part of it is just like showing your work. Got it. So you've been in a classroom for a long time now as a student and as a professor. What are some trends that you see students going through from when you first started to now? The good and the bad. Wow, that is a big question, right? So I think that the law school classroom when I was there was actually a much less inviting space, right? In that uh, professors could do no wrong. Professors were very, very scary. Um, student well-being was not even a consideration, right? So there were a lot of moments where looking back, there was trauma that was happening in the classroom um, where professors were just for no reason just being terrible to the students. And, and that might still be happening, right? But my sense of things is that by and large, my colleagues and certainly my OU colleagues are really thinking about are we creating the right environment for our students to thrive, right? I want my students to feel supported. I want them to feel connected, right? And if they aren't, um, then I want them to come to me and seek help, right? I think, you know, especially with COVID, you know, the, the law school environment is, you know, already a tough place. I think it's even even tougher now. So I think that that's one change. I think another change is that students are really like invested in making a difference, right? So like, I'll be honest, when I went to law school, um, there were a lot, a lot of students who really, one, didn't know why they wanted to be in law, right? It was just that their parents said, you know, go to law school, go to med school, go to a PhD program, and they chose law because it was probably the one that they didn't have to have prereqs for, right? Um, and I'm sure, again, that might be be the case for some people now. But um, so I've been on admissions committees, um, and I would say in the last five years, I'm seeing a growth of students who like it's very considered, right? They may not know exactly what they want to do in law, but they're really passionate about that. And I think that that is super exciting, right? That that we have students who really want to be in the classroom. They really want to go out and make a difference. So like, I, I think it's a super exciting time to be a law student, but also to be a faculty member, right? Because I, I would much rather teach students who like are really passionate about law than those who are kind of like, I don't know, mom and dad told me that this is something that I want to do, right? Because law school is super expensive too, right? So um, you know, having students who, who, who are really invested in the process, I think is super important. And so professor, I have you for your evidence class. Yes, you do. <laughs> I have, and for everybody listening out there that is an evidence for Professor Lee, me and him are going to talk about the final, which is 
Yeah. Offline, don't offline. Get, don't get too jealous. But I've heard you talk about your passion for the Jags, and I've even heard you mention that it was because of a movie that kind of maybe stroked this passion. So could you just talk about that and maybe your time in the Jags? Yeah, so so the Jag Corps, for those people who don't know, um, is, you know, all of the branches have a Jag Corps. So there's the Air Force Jag, the Army Jag, Navy, and Marine Corps. Um, and I kind of joke that A Few Good Men, the movie, if you've not seen it, go see it. Um, Tom Cruise, it's amazing, right? That that was sort of like one of those moments, right? Um, and that's sort of true. That's some of it. I'll be honest. So I'm I'm a little older um, than most. So 9/11 for me was um, a momentous time for all of the wrong reasons, right? So I was in North Carolina um, in school. I had a lot of friends in the army at the time. It was scary, um, and I remember being on campus at UNC. When it, well, in fact, I'll back up. I was in Fayetteville at Fort Bragg seeing a friend when it happened. Um, and I drove back to Chapel Hill, um, which is about a two-hour drive. And it was just, it was a scary time. Um, and at that moment, even though I didn't join in 2001, at that moment, I knew that I wanted to serve. Right, And so I actually started, I, I enlisted in the infantry. Um, and then I was in law school <laughs> and my, my boss at the time, I was in the field. I had it, an environmental law textbook. It was three o'clock in the morning. I have a flashlight in my hand and they're like, what are you doing? Right? It's three o'clock on a Sunday morning. I'm like, I've got an exam in environmental law. And they're like, wait a minute, you're in law school. Um, because you know, most, enlisted soldiers are not in law school right but but that that for me like i wanted to serve right and whether it was in the infantry or in the, or in the jag i really valued service and being in the jag was great um it's the best first job i think of course i'm biased that 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 and clerking so i was also a clerk um but being a jag officer you get to do a little bit of everything and malpractice is not a thing, right? Because you're in the military, right? Like you're not going to get sued. They're not going to get sued. There are like laws that say that they generally won't get sued. So they were basically like, Hey, you, you want to go draft a multi-million dollar contract? Go ahead. Like it's not gonna, you know, there's no malpractice. And, and they really valued what I would call smart people right? Like a lot of what we do as lawyers, sure, there's the law, but a lot of what you're, you're doing is you're trying to problem solve, right? And so they value sort of smart people and would put them into whatever environment that they needed, right? I did a little bit of contract drafting. I was prosecutor um, do, uh, doing that function. I um, did some you know, admin law reg work, right? It's a really great way to just see a little bit of everything to know what you want to do, but also to know what you 
don't want to do, which I think is equally as important as a new attorney is to figure out like, these are the environments that I feel comfortable with. And these are the kinds of things that I don't want to deal with, right? Because I see that a lot um, in PR, actually. When, when I teach ethics to students, they haven't really thought about the practical realities of what it means to practice in a cur- in a certain setting, right? There are some things that we as lawyers may be comfortable with. There's some things that we won't, right? And so that was something that I, I got to see in the army, like firsthand, like I don't wanna do you know, X, but Y is not that bad, right? And that's something that I, I think is important for all of our law students to start thinking about as well. Do you feel like your desire to serve, at least within the the JAG program in, in the National Guard translates really well into your you know passion for teaching? Yeah. So um, I come from a family of educators. Okay, so I was that kid. This won't be a surprise to those people who have me in class. That in ninth grade, I asked my mom for a whiteboard. Like if that just gives you an indication, right? So I would invite all of my friends over and I, I would teach them physics, right? Because I was a math person, right? So I was one of the few people who, who sort of got all of the math. And like, I, I just got super excited. And what those friends of mine didn't know and, and what a lot of times my students don't know, it's like you have to know something really well to teach it. So like they thought I was helping them I was helping myself and helping them, right? You know, so like if you try to teach someone a new skill, you have to anticipate all of the questions that they're going to ask. You have to sort of break it down in a way that a variety of people can understand. And that to me is super exciting, right? Now, I can't do that for every single student in my class, right? My evidence class has 75 students, right? So if I am teaching evidence, my goal in a single class is to reach hopefully 60 to 65 students on any one day. And it won't be the same ones, right? But there are going to be some students that are going to need to hear it in a different way, right? So the other part I love is just to have a student in my office that you can tell they just, they're just not getting it, right? And then I had them install a white a whiteboard, surprise, surprise, in my office, right? And I just go up to the whiteboard and then I try to like let them talk about their understanding and then I try to figure out a way to teach it in a different way so that this person who is not part of the 60 students, that they can understand it too, right? And if like you can see the light bulb come on, it's super exciting. Yeah, so... I, I came to law school in part because I wanted to, like, make a difference, right? I wanted to serve, right? But for me, at least for me, like, I would be a fine attorney. I stutter, so I'm not great. Um, or at least I don't think I am, right? But I'd be a, a good, solid attorney, right? But, like, I can go and teach hundreds of students who can all go to their communities, right, and they can impact tons of clients' lives, right? So, like, I see me as amplifying, right? And that, to me, is service that, like, I couldn't do, for me at least, if I were just a lawyer. Yeah, that's fabulous. Yeah. yeah. All right. 
That's outstanding. I mean, uh, my next question, I really don't know how to top that, Professor. <laughs> uh, wow. um, so my next question, Professor, going since we're here with Talus, we'll talk yeah. about technology a sure. little bit. So Absolutely. I was wanting to know, as a teacher compared to your time in the military, was the military an organization that used a lot of technology in your field or very minimum when it came to the aspect of law? So when it came to the aspect of law, I mean, we were um, cash-strapped, right? Right, like, like we didn't have the like latest and greatest technology. It was very much sort of, I mean, it wasn't pen and paper. Like we had computers, right? But like I see a lot of the fancy sort of forensic technology that goes on now in the modern courtrooms like we didn't have any of that it was not <laughs> it was not that kind of environment um so i would say that like we were basically using you know microsoft word powerpoint but like this was 2010 right T 2008 like things have changed so dramatically in the last 12 years um, it's amazing, right? Like, like, and, and, and I'm, I'm not nearly as up with it as many people are. What I will say where, where I've been focusing on technology is actually on the ethics issues because like technology is wonderful, but it's also sort of bringing to light all kinds of potential pitfalls, right? as lawyers are collecting lots and lots of information from clients, trying to use that information that like it is, I mean, technology is its own beast, right? Like it is wonderful if you can harness it, right? But it can also be super terrifying if you don't know what you're doing. So the law school posted on LinkedIn um, today about a presentation that you're gonna give um, for the Oklahoma Bar Association annual conference. Yes. Assuming the majority of us students will not be there for that <laughs> luncheon. Um, could you give us a summary of what you're going to talk about? I believe the topic, um, the title is um, Ethical Issues in the Virtual Age, Recent Developments. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about this. And um, I will be giving a version of some of it in a clinic class or in an externship class that is focused on ethics issues. So it really is about, you know, all of the ethical pitfalls that can happen as we make that transition to being online. So, so it can be everything as mundane as there are a lot of lawyers who um, have been getting like bad client reviews on Avo, on Google, right? And rather than sort of dealing with it privately, they've taken to writing up a response, right? Um, which will often include in confidential information from their clients, right? Explaining why they didn't do a poor job and they're getting sanctioned by the bar for that, right? So that's just something that like didn't really happen 20 years ago, right? We didn't really have like internet reviews of any sort, right? And so all of that was happening word of mouth. It wouldn't be an issue, right? So it's sort of, you know, that's one issue. Another big issue is sort of how we keep confidential 
client information when we're thinking about things like emails, right? You know, um, when you're emailing a client, are you emailing them at their work? Well, if you are, and the employer has a policy that says that they can read those emails, what does that mean in terms of confidentiality, in terms of attorney-client privilege, right? That, 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 that we as attorneys have to be really mindful of that. Another issue that's coming up a lot is, is data breaches. So I think some, there is a statistic, I won't get it right on the fly, but it's something like 40% of all major law firms have had a data breach, right? Um, And so what do we do? What are our obligations, right? First, to try to prevent such data breaches from not happening, but then when they do, do do you have an obligation, right? And to tell someone and if you do who do you have an obligation to tell right is it only your current clients is it other people whose information you got in connection with that case right there are also issues about malpractice and you know the average attorney age is 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 pro- probably somewhere in the mid 50s right so you know i'm i'm in my 40s um so i sort of grew up during the transition and even i don't feel you know completely comfortable like i i i don't use tiktok like i have no idea right like i i i use twitter i use facebook i understand email right but like a lot of the things i mean we we still hear from from lawyers who as a matter of confidentiality have different cell phones for every client like each client has their own number or their own cell phone like they don't even understand sort of how google voice works and things like that right so like we're dealing with a real time of change in terms of technology, right? And 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 technology competence, right? From an, it is an ethical issue, right? Um, that that we as attorneys of all ages have to deal with. Professor Lee, where does this passion for like this topic come from? Especially with technology being like such a new field, like the new thing. I feel like in the field of law, like. What made you want to do the research on this and could present it? Yeah. So I am an ethics person, right? And so what I think about, so, and I focus on law firm ethics, right? So I'm really interested in the relationships between newly licensed lawyers and the sort of law firm environment writ large, right? And this is one of those areas where I think actually newly licensed lawyers are in a better place than their supervisors, right? To understand a lot of these issues, right? And it's just a place where I think that there's just such a gap, right? Where um, attorneys are used to operating in certain ways. We make certain assumptions based on a world that that is rapidly changing and does not exist anymore, right? And in, in particularly, I am concerned about places where, where clients can be vulnerable, right? And to me, given the wealth of information that attorneys possess about their clients, um, the possibility that it might be misused or that someone else could acquire that information um, is something that needs to be talked about, right? And so I was a, a math 
major, but I was actually a computer programmer was my sort of first job. Um, and so like now that was 1998, right? Um, so like I was like back in the HTML days, right? When it was just HTML, that was a new thing, right? So like I... I saw all of that. I was part of the dot-com boom and bust, both, <laughs> um, right? And so, like, I feel like I'm positioned better than most to be able to talk about those issues. I don't know everything, but but there aren't a lot of people who are sort of both interested in ethics but also more technology-minded. What would be some of your advice for us as we go into law firms and environments where we're interacting with all of this client data um, to ensure that we're doing the best that we can um, to ensure that we're being ethical in, in all that we do. Right. So this is a great question, right? Because I think that there is a tendency for all of us, and I have been guilty of this in the past, right, of playing really fast and loose with things like email accounts, right? Like, oh, I've got this thing at work. I don't want to take my computer home. I'll just email it to myself. No, personal email, no, right? So like, we have to be really careful to like not put on our, like, I'm sure everything's going to be okay hat, right? And think more about sort of, this is sensitive client information, right? And and I, I talk about this a lot in terms of um, even offline. Confidentiality, our clients' data and information, sure, it has value economically, but it's also their story, right? And the analogy that I draw is this. Would you want your doctor to go to their doctor friends and tell them about the time that they saw you in their office, right? No, right? Because that's your personal information. You're sharing it with the doctor, even if it's there's no sort of economic loss there, that there's something really personal about both the doctor-patient relationship, but also the lawyer-client one. And I think that there are times, both in terms of technology, but just in terms of conversing with other attorneys, that sometimes we have a tendency to sort of take clients' stories and clients' information and use them as fodder for conversation, right? And so I think it's really important for us when we are thinking about client matters to really observe those formalities, right? And so if you start from a place of, this is confidential information. How would, how should I treat it? And how would I want it treated if it were my own, right? Would I want it to randomly go to someone's personal email account that might be up so their significant other could see it? Do I want it to an unencrypted email that, you know, whose password is password, right? <laughs> you know, we, 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 we really need to be thinking about all these things. And as newer attorneys, I think, it is completely fine for you to talk to your supervisor if you see something that doesn't feel secure, right? That feels like it could be open to attack. And that's a tough conversation to have. But that's why I was saying, I think newly licensed attorneys who are younger in age and more familiar with technology and its benefits and pitfalls are better equipped 
to be able to talk to their supervisor about that. Like, hey, let's use Box. I'm sure you know what Box is for data storage. And let's not use something that, you know, just someone's email account, right? How would you uh, suggest starting that conversation as a young new person working at a firm and seeing that their system is out to date and opening up these suggestions? Like, I know it can be a scary time, like those first couple of weeks on the job, but I feel like spotting this, you owe this to your client. I feel like you've stressed this in class as well. So how would you start that conversation? It's tough, right? Um, it's tough because especially if you don't have the job yet, right? If you're a, an intern or, or if you're a new associate, you feel like you don't have a lot of time on the job. Um, how I would start is I would first try to develop a bit of a relationship with the person, right? Take the person out to lunch, right? You're bringing a different perspective than like, I know more than you about a legal matter, right? I think you can say, hey, you know, I noticed X, right? Um, and I'm sure that, that, that we all want to um, ensure that our client's information is kept confidential, right? Um, I have heard that, blah, 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 right? So, you know, I wouldn't assume, I wouldn't say you must do this, but like, identifying like here are ways that we could improve our security right is different than you are doing this wrong right so it's the same information it's just packaged in a slightly different way right but i would say that many attorneys are going to be um really valuing that information right because a lot of attorneys that 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 i've talked to like they don't know what they don't know right so if you said oh that email, that unencrypted email isn't really the best way to handle this because there's financial information involved, right? The problem with our ethics rules, I mean, it's a problem slash it just is what it is. Technology is changing so quickly that like there aren't specific rules that say you have to use encrypted email in this circumstance or you need to use box or, or you need to use two-factor authentication, right? What it says is that it has to be reasonable, of course, right? The standard that we use for everything, right? But like, as the, as the sensitivity of the information increases, the measures that we take need to increase as well. So I think particularly if you've seen things out in practice or you saw things in a clinic, for example, um, that that is information that you can pass along. And over time, courts are going to require more. Judges are going to ask for more, right? It's only a matter of time, right? Because data, you know, data breaches are so common now that law firms need to be taking more care than they currently are. So, Professor Lee, I want to pivot a little bit into something that you've worked on, and I think you're currently working on here at the law school, um, is the topic of diversity and, and inclusion within the law school setting, um, and as well, um, higher education. Um, so by the end of this month, I believe the Supreme Court's going to hear a case um, combining cases from Harvard and the University of North Carolina um, about affirmative action. Um, so what are your thoughts at the moment about the state of diversity and inclusion within the um, the legal um, schools, the law school setting, um, and ways that we can continue to improve 
Yeah, so that is a complex and nuanced question, right? And so I think that there are a few components to this. One is where we are as a profession, right? And I don't have the statistics on me right now, but I can tell you that in terms of law firms, particularly partners in law firms, um, they are disproportionately white, male, heterosexual, right, uh, of a certain age, right? And, and, and it's those percentages are higher than what we see in law schools, quite frankly, right? And so that's its own sort of issue, right, that, that sort of how that pipeline works, right? But in terms of law schools themselves, I think it's so important to have a diversity of perspectives, right? So I came from Charleston, West Virginia, right? Um, the uh, school that I was supposed to go to, the high school, had no black students in it. 900 students, right? Yeah, it, right? So, like, so what, what are the conversations like in a school like that, right? So I'll give you an example. You know, I teach torts. I teach criminal law. I have. I've taught contracts. When I teach cases that that involve issues of race and gender, class, right, religion, it's so important to be able to bring in lived experience, right? Like I cannot speak from the lived experience of being a black man because I'm not, right? Um, and when we are thinking about who a reasonable person is, right? You know, I tell my students in torts, or I did, that like in one sense we think of them as a Teletubby, right? Like they have no gender, they have no race, right? They're just this sort of amorphous being, this reasonable person. And yet if you look at the way that the law's been applied, it's been a reasonable white man, right? And so we need to talk about both of those things but in order to really tease those out in the classroom we have to have perspectives from everyone right and not just perspectives everyone needs to feel like not only are they at the table not only that they have a seat at the table but that their perspective is valued and heard and taken in what do you think are some ways that we can encourage that um, everybody from, from all walks of life to, to voice their opinions on the issues? Right. I think what's important is that we all have to start, and I hope to create this environment in my classroom, where this is a safe space where we can all be vulnerable enough to say things and not be concerned that we are going to express them incorrectly right i think at the same time everyone in a classroom has to assume good intentionality until the circumstances indicate otherwise right because i have been in classrooms where i can feel the tension that no one really wants to say something for fear that they're going to say it incorrectly or that they're going to express an opinion that others won't agree with so i'll give you an example um, in PR, I talk about the torture memos, right? Which were, you know, um, for many of us in the 
in the military um, or that were associated with it. It was not it was not something that we look upon fondly, right? And yet they were written in a moment in time, right? And that there were some that really believed that that was the right thing to do, right? To have this more sort of aggressive, kind of forward-leaning um, policy. And I find that students struggle with how to justify it, right? Um, but I think it's important for us to express all of the views, for and against, right? Irrespective of what what we we personally agree with, because that's how we ultimately come to a better reasoned conclusion, right? And one that we also believe is fair and equitable. Um, and so that that's just one example. But I th I think that that's true generally, right? I, I think we all also people on both sides of the political spectrum, at least, feel like everyone is talking at each other and we're not talking to each other. And I think that that's also something that, in, in the law school classroom at least, we should be doing the hard work um, that we would like to see in the world as well. How would you challenge your students to really strive towards this goal? of being open about what they want to express, but also not living in fear of what they're saying, being judged for it. Wow. Um, I think it starts actually with, and, and this seems counterintuitive, um, really just engaging with all of your classmates, not only in the classroom, but also outside of the classroom, right? So I think it's really easy when you find a group of students that you or a group of friends that you agree with that just like in real life, we live in these bubbles, right? But I would sort of start with, you know, let's talk to people that you see in the classroom, outside of the classroom, right? That you don't necessarily agree with, right? Because I think it's hard when you're in a law school classroom, when, when you're in front of 75 people, and the, this is the first time that you've expressed something, to let, like say it out loud, right? But if we start with, I think having more organic conversations, I think that that's helpful. I think that there are things that that I, as a professor, can do as well, right? Um, I am uh, very open and honest when I come to issues that I have experience with and I have bias with that I actually acknowledge that, right? Like I have an experience as a survivor, right? And so I, when, when I deal with certain issues in class, I'm probably coming at them with bias. I think acknowledging that actually is really important. Now, I, I don't think that every student needs to acknowledge in class things that they, that they don't feel comfortable acknowledging. But I think at the very least, we should, before we speak and when we speak, sort of think about that, right? Like I may be coming at this with, a little, with an experience, which also makes me inclined probably to think a particular way, but also realize that not all people have that same experience, right? So part of it is just being open to, wow, like I grew up in a you know, middle-class family in West Virginia. Um, I wanted for nothing probably until I was 18. And then I came out 
um, and I was homeless for a year and a half, right? Um, and that it undoubtedly affected me, right? And so while I was privileged in many ways growing up, there were some ways in which I was not, right? And so realizing that other people have experiences that are not the same as mine, and that's why they're viewing something in a different way, super beneficial. Professor, would you mind me asking about an experience you've had? So I've heard you mention in class that you are a homosexual man. Would you speak for maybe those who are members of the LGBTQ community who have been having a tough time or experiences how you got through those tough times or situations? Sure. I, I would first say I, I can't speak for all gay people, right? Like we, we all have our own experiences, right? Um, so when I can't... Came out. It was 1996. It was a very different environment, harder in some ways, um, but m easier probably in others for me. So, um, you know, I was 18, so I was able to sort of break away from my parents for better or worse for a while. Um, but in in terms of 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 of, of how I dealt with that. Um, you know, in part, I had to sort of separate what I had heard about people like me from the reality of me, right? I think the most important thing is to surround yourself with people who lift you up, right? Um, and so, you know, early on for me, it, it was about if, if I had people around me that weren't going to lift me up, then quite frankly, I wasn't going to deal with them, right? Um, I'm now at a place where, like, like I, I can, I am friends with people who don't necessarily agree with all aspects of my life, but, like, I'm at a place where I can do that, right? Um, and so, yeah, so I, I think that the struggle is real, and, 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 and we can't know how other people will adapt, right? I think, it's really easy to say, oh, it's 2022. Like, it's so different than 1996. But, like, I came from a very religious household. And that is could still be the case in 2022, that people would not necessarily agree with the way that I am. And so I would say, like, reaching out, finding those people who will lift you up. I, I will always be that person. Um, so I have candy in my office for those people at OU Law who wants to come by and, and say hello in a confidential way. I think also part of it is don't feel like you have to go from zero to 100. Everything is a process, right? We are not all in the same place, right? There is no need, you know, if you're un unsure, uncertain about whatever aspect of your identity that you don't have to like come out immediately, right? Or at all, right? Um, that is the beauty, right? Is that one can be, can keep things as confidential or as open as they feel comfortable with. One thing that I've been really impressed with, at least here at OU Law has been just how inclusive everybody is. We have professors and students from all races, nationalities, from all over the country. Um, what do you think is one way that we can continue to be more inclusive and bring in more people and 
um, foster even more of the sense of inclusion within the school. Right. So I have chaired um, like the admissions committee. What I see is that we need, so we do a really good job, I think, in our community. I think once you're here, you feel the inclusiveness. I think we need to tell the world that more, right? Like, I mean, we have the most amazing student orgs that I have ever seen. Like, like I've been at three schools now, right? Nalsa, Balsa, Outlaw, all of our student orgs, and even the and even students who are not involved in any student org, right? Super inclusive. But I don't know that the rest of the country knows that, right? And I think that there are preconceived notions, depending on where you live, about what it means to live in Oklahoma, right? I lived on the East Coast, right? Like, it's the South, it's Texas, it's this, it's that. It's so different here, right? But we have to tell that story, right? And that is incumbent, I think, on all of us. I mean, I realize that students are super busy, right? But, like, as a faculty member, I try to do it. I think our student orgs can do it. And we, we need to amplify that, right? Because, like, I want students from all over the country to come here and stay here, right? And be lawyers in Oklahoma. So just a little fun question. Uh, you mentioned your bowl of candy that you like to keep in the office. I have enjoyed your bowl quite a few times. Uh, I wanted to ask, is there any piece of candy that when students grab, you die a little bit on the inside? You know what? I only put candy. So I don't like chocolate. So I only put candy in the bowl that I won't eat, right? If there were like if there was bread in the bowl, there would be no bread in the bowl. Let's be clear, right? Like, I am a bread person. I am a pie person. Like, so, like, I don't die on the inside. I'm just like, whatever, right? There is nothing. I just do not care. And that is why that candy is in the bowl. So here at Talus, we really try to focus on emphasizing the use of technology within um, the legal profession. One thing that I've noticed is your LinkedIn account, you're always on it. You're always posting information. Um, I know a lot of professors as well use Twitter. How can, how are you utilizing these social media platforms and how would you encourage us as students to continue to do that, to promote ourselves or, or bring up the issues? Yeah. So I would start on, on um, Twitter and LinkedIn, particularly LinkedIn. That is where lawyers are, right? So if you're networking, if you want to network with lawyers, go on LinkedIn. Twitter is is lawyers, but also professors. So for me, um, it is really about getting, quite frankly, OU out there, right? So like I see myself as a voice, a megaphone for OU, right? I also think it's important to lift up students, right? And so for me at least, right, I go on there to sort of see like what did my recent grad, like where are they now, right? Because I, I think that that is important to keep those connections. So for law students, LinkedIn, start commenting, start posting because, because this, is the, this is your community, right? And this is how 
as you're transitioning from job to job, people will say, oh, I saw you on LinkedIn, right? Oh, you were posting really interesting things, right? And I know it seems like work, but in the end, a lot of what we do as attorneys, this networking, I hate that word, right? But, but it's really about a community, right? This is a professional community. And the way that we communicate with a professional community nowadays, it's not on the phone. That is so archaic and it is not efficient. The way you can reach people is through broader social media platforms. So our final question, you've made this transition here to Oklahoma. Um, why OU Law? I love OU Law, okay? So let me tell you why. State public flagship, number one, right? In the South, right? Um, OU is on the move, right? Our hires in the last three years, phenomenal. The best, right? I won't name them all. Look them up. Go on LinkedIn, right? Amazing, right? And so, like, we are not only a good value, we are sort of, like, like, you know, underestimated, right? But like, we are only going to increase, right? And so like, who wants to be at a place that's just like fending off other people? Don't play defense, play offense, right? You know, you know, I, I am not a defensive player. I'm an offensive player, right? And so like, OU is that place, right? And it's, a, it's also a super great community, Right. When I came here, the reason I chose OU, other than it was amazing, right, was that when I came here, the faculty to a person wanted me to be here. Right. And I want to be at a place where people want me to be here and I want them to be here, too. Right. That that that's the kind of community that 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 we have here. And like to me, that's just super exciting. Well, Professor Lee, thank you so much for for joining us. For those of the, for those of um, our listeners that want to find you and your social media, where where can they reach out to you at? Um, so I'm on Twitter, John Lee Law Prof, LinkedIn, John Lee, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, we are grateful for you listening. Um, we ask that you please give us a like, subscribe, follow our our tally cast. We are only going to keep keep going up, keep bringing in professors, professional students to to talk about the issues that we face as well as the, the great environment that we have at, at OU. Professor Lee, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.